Welcome to the Data Chief. The Data Chief is a podcast for data and analytics leaders to share their personal stories and insights on technology, culture, and leadership. As we wrap up season two of the Data Chief podcast, I want to once again thank all of you, our listeners, for tuning in and sending me your ideas and all of our awesome guests who so willingly share their time and insights. I also want to be sure that you, as very busy data and analytics leaders, are always investing in yourself and your own continuous learning. Now, you recently heard how the Chief Analytics Officer from Estee Lauder, Sol Rashidi, starts every day by reading for an hour, pre-dawn, or from season one, Alberto Ray Villaverdo, the Executive Director of Advanced Analytics at Virgin Media, reads an hour or more every single day. So in this podcast, I've brought in four great authors with must-read books, two new and two time-tested. Be sure to check out the companion blog on thedatachief.com for other books I recommend. Yes, I'm always reading. In this episode, you'll hear first from Randy Bean, author of Fail Fast, Learn Faster, John Thompson on building analytics teams, Cole Neuspalmer Naflick on storytelling with data, and finally, Doug Laney on infonomics, how to monetize, manage, and measure information as an asset for competitive advantage. Randy Bean is the co-founder of New Vantage Partners, who authors its annual survey of chief data officers. Despite authoring dozens of articles for the Wall Street Journal, Forbes, and Harvard Business Review over the years, Fail Fast, Learn Faster is Randy's first book and a true gift for our industry. I had the privilege of previewing this book prior to its release and can say it is a must read for all executives in a data-driven world. It's both inspiring and cautionary. Data Chief is presented by our friends at ThoughtSpot, the modern analytics cloud company. ThoughtSpot makes it easy for anyone to analyze your company's data with search and AI. Business people from companies like Walmart, Hulu, Schneider Electric, Cloud Academy, and Mercado use ThoughtSpot to quickly uncover new insights and turn them into action. You can learn more at ThoughtSpot.com. Randy Bean, welcome to the Data Chief. Nice to be here, Cindy. Where are you joining us from, Randy? Sometimes in, I'm at my uh, home in Boston, in uh, Copley Square in Boston, but today I'm in my home on the Rhode Island, uh, Connecticut shoreline, Stonington, Connecticut. And if I look off to my immediate left, I can see uh, Taylor Swift's house. Oh, cool. <laughs> yeah, so now I'm picturing a totally beautiful view, a great view by which to write a book. Now, Randy, I confess I've been a fan for many years. You are so prolific writing for the Wall Street Journal, Forbes, so many magazines. What inspired you to write this book? Why now? Well, Cindy, there was really a few factors. One was uh, we were going into the second COVID winter. So I was looking at a long, dark, cold winter in New England not being able to travel to any of the places that I enjoy traveling to. 
And second of all, you know, I've spent many decades now in the industry and in the field. And I felt it was time to kind of, I call it a legacy project. In other words, if not now, when? Uh, so it was really an opportunity to kind of pull all of my thoughts together and share my perspective both on what's evolved over the past generation, but a perspective and outlook on uh, the future, the future generation and where data may go during those years that lie ahead. Yeah, so that's pretty profound. I know this, well, your career, your voice is a legacy alone in the industry, but you were so gracious to let me preview some of the chapters before the book came out. And I've said, It absolutely is a must read, not only by data professionals, but any CEO aiming to be data driven. Was that your intention or who do you envision should really be reading this book? Uh, Well, first of all, thank you for the kind words. Uh, Second of all, my intentions were uh, quite ambitious. And to the degree that I fulfilled any of those, that would be a good outcome. So let me give you tell you a few things. First of all, uh, when I'm not doing data things, I'm actually the co-chair of uh, an international writers in residence program, which you know are the writers that have come through include Pulitzer Prize winners, National Book Award winners, the Booker Prize winner in the UK, and one of our writers last year actually won the Nobel Prize for Literature. So wow. I, I spend a lot of time with people that write a lot of books and, and are literary. And so I didn't want to write just another business book. I mean, the publishers reached out and said, can you write a business book? But I want to write something that really provided um, some type of perspective, both a historical perspective, kind of situated data in this present time and place and why data is important. And so that was really uh, my, my, my goals in writing the book. In, in terms of the audience, I was really trying to reach uh, three audiences primarily. The first one is uh, corporate CEOs and members of the board of directors. And one of the reasons why is because all of the articles I write, I'm really writing with that audience in mind. And I, I joke with people that I'm when I do that, I'm writing at a third grade level. In other words, what I'm always trying to do is bring complex ideas down to a level that anyone can understand them. And my experience has been that often CEOs or or board directors, they're not so much interested in the how, they're interested in the what. In other words, is it faster? Is it cheaper? Uh, Will it give us competitive advantage? And fundamentally, that's all they really have the time and energy to, to, to care about. So I try to distill and simplify um, what it was about data that was important. And that's what I try to do in all of my articles. And then I try to write for a general audience, people trying to understand, because people will ask me what I do. And I try to translate it in a way that's relevant to them so that they'll understand what all the fuss is about. And COVID-19 really provided an opportunity to do that because there was all the data that was being gathered together into dashboards so people could understand their risk factors and then later the opportunity to develop vaccines. So I I used that as an illustration or a metaphor, if you will, to help uh, people understand why data is powerful and why data is important to them. Yeah. So you're surrounded by writers. um, So that's inspiring. You have the time, you have the expertise. I think the emphasis in the title, Fail Fast, is an interesting focus. What's the key message here? 
Yeah, you know, as mentioned, I was writing for a couple different audiences. And so to tip my hat to the literary folks, I tried to borrow a lot of uh, quotes that I start each chapter with. And the, the title, Fail Fast, Learn Fast, is actually borrowed from Irish playwright uh, Samuel Beckett, who's most known for writing the play Waiting for Godot. And I know most data people <laughs> would probably not care very much about that. But uh, interestingly enough, uh, I was watching a, a tennis match a few years ago, and they had the Swiss tennis player, Stan Warenka, and he had something tattooed up and down his arm. And, uh, you know, I, I, I zeroed in on it and it said, ever tried, ever failed, no matter, try again, fail again, fail better. And I thought that was a, a great uh, example or, or, or metaphor for a lot of the challenges around data. And you can even take it down into something as specific as test and learn. But what data allows you to do, among other things, is to try new things, see if you can be more competitive, see where you can gain insights. And it's very much an iterative process. So all of those notions tied into this um, idea of fail fast, learn faster, and then because it was really a historical perspective. And it was also about learning. So the, the, the full title, Fail Fast, Learn Faster, Lessons in Data-Driven Leadership in an Age of Disruption, Big Data, and AI. Being an English major as an undergraduate, yes, I know, Samuel Beckett. I'm looking at the top shelf in my library here have all the classics up there. So I love that you have interwoven themes and quotes from other literary writers. You referred to this historical perspective as well, and you co-founded New Vantage Partners, and you've been publishing this annual survey for more than 10 years now. And it reflects some of the changes in our industry, even like the emergence of the role of the chief data officer but some things seem stubbornly constant. For example, that only 24% have created a data-driven organization. Are we getting any better here? Yeah, let me, let me answer this this way, Cindy, because sometimes I tell the story. It was, uh, believe it or not, 40 years ago when I, when I started in the profession. And I went to work for a major bank. At the time, it was a top 10 bank, Bank of Austin, which later became part of Bank of America. I was actually trained as a COBOL and assembler programmer, but I was less interested in the programming. And I was like looking at all this data and I said, wow, there's like so much data. What do you guys do with it? And they said, oh, the regulators make us keep it for seven years. We put it in the vault and then we're free to destroy it. And I was just like, what? So you have all this information that you can learn about your customers, gain insights into um uh, what products and services they like to use, how they buy, um, all of their patterns of behavior, and you just view this as something that's a penalty that you have to uh, save because some regulators are making you do so. So from the outset, I've been very interested in how organizations can benefit from data. And back 40 years ago, the questions were, how could we gain insight? How could we learn from the data we have? Well, you know, those are the same questions today. You know, I have a, a colleague that's in a completely different field, and he said to me, you know, if we have all of this information, all of this data, how come people aren't any wiser or any smarter? So that's a long way of answering your question, and that is, is that we, we do conduct this annual survey every year. And you pointed out, for example, that only 24% of organizations had created a data-driven organization and only 24.4% have forged a data culture. 
Interestingly enough, those numbers are actually down from what they were in 2019. So in terms of creating a data-driven organization, the numbers went down from 31% saying yes to 24%, and forging a data culture down from 28.3% to 24.4%. There's two ways of looking at it. One, you could say that people are getting worse, but I, but I actually don't think that's the case. I think it's something different. I think that people are becoming more realistic. And when people had a simplistic idea of what data could do for them or, or what it took to develop a data culture, be data-driven, they just said, yeah, you know, we, we're data-driven and had a data culture. But as people become more sophisticated with data, as the role of the chief data officer becomes more evolved in organizations, organizations are becoming much more self-critical and realizing that there's still a lot of work to be done. So I, what I attribute the lower uh, overall percentages to is that organizations are becoming more realistic and more critical, self-critical about the work that needs to be done. And that means that there's a great opportunity over the coming decade and coming decades for the data profession because if there's this opportunity for improvement and there's this demand and there's this continued proliferation of data, then um, there's few better fields to be in in terms of the growth and opportunities. Yeah. So there's a couple things in there, Randy. First, I would imagine anyone listening had a collective intake of <laughs> gasping that the financial services firms did not know the value of data at that point in time 30, 40 years ago. But the other thing, this decline, the negativity from the survey results this past year, I also wonder if it's that the data that they had was not good enough to help them pivot fast enough in this wild economy. And so there was some pessimistic outlook there. Yeah, you know, it's, um, well, it's a trend. It's been a declining trend for, for several years now. But you know, one, one of the challenges is the continued proliferation of data. So even though organizations may gain sophistication in their governance capabilities and the data management capabilities, they continue to be confronted with new sources of data at an accelerated rate of data capture. So it's, um, you know, what I say to people is that Becoming data-driven or developing data culture is not a destination. It's not like being king of the hill that you get there and then you can relax. It's an ongoing process. It never ends. I often say that those companies that many others view as the most sophisticated in terms of data and in financial services, I'll use Capital One and American Express as examples, they're the ones that are most worried about how they're doing. They're the ones that are always saying, what can we be doing better? They're always looking over their shoulder. They're looking at companies and in other industries to see what they're doing. When I go into organizations and they say, oh, we've got it all figured out, that's when I worry. Right. Yeah. Because everything is changing faster and faster. Well, you mentioned Capital One and American Express. So if you think of two segments of organizations Capital One and American Express started as a traditional organization, became digital, and leveraged data. If you think about traditional organizations, who should they most emulate? And maybe think of some that only just started to digitize last year. Is it the Capital Ones and American Expresses, or who, who should they most emulate? You know, the biggest challenge and biggest opportunity is the legacy companies. I, I mean, for example, 
mainstream companies that have existed for a long time. So, so Wells Fargo, uh, for example, uh, American Express as well, but Wells Fargo started back in the days of the Pony Express and American Express started uh, back in the 19th century as well, I believe, and, and many other institutions. And so, you know, these companies have built up vast repositories of information and they, you know, they're not digitally native. So they have to transform from how they've operated and operated very successfully for decades and generations uh, to operate in a new digital world. Uh, interestingly enough, uh, Capital One is only uh, roughly 30, I have to look up the exact dates, but roughly only 30 years old. And they really started as data and analytics people that applied the data and analytics skill to uh, banking and, and financial services. So they, they represent uh, really an example of um, a, a newer type of organization that has really been born out of the data and analytics period. Yeah, that's good. And now if we take the second category of companies, digital natives, who of the digital natives would you say startups others should most emulate? I have an article coming out in Forbes in the next week or so about a, a new uh, insure tech company, Traffic, T-R-A-F-F-K. And companies like Traffic and Lemonade are uh, completely digitally native companies. And they're uh, able to capture far more data as opposed to insurance companies that were used to uh, going through the old uh, actuarial tables. So, so those are some examples. Obviously, companies like Square, PayPal, uh, among others in traditional financial services have uh, certainly disrupted the payment process. Yeah, definitely. And if you look at the book in its entirety, what do you have one favorite chapter? Actually, my favorite chapter is the chapter on data ethics, because a lot of the other chapters are pretty straightforward. In other words, talking about the rise of the chief data officer, talking about the importance of culture in organizations. But data ethics, I think, is the uh, scariest partner, the scariest chapter, chapter that is. Some people have pointed out that it's a little bit uh, terrifying compared to the rest of the book because it talks about all of the negative consequences uh, from the misuse of data. And, you know, for, for example, uh, the Cambridge Analytica case and Kathy O'Neill, who wrote her book, Weapons of Math Destruction, it talks about uh, risks related to privacy and issues that organizations need to adhere to if they want to be good corporate citizens and what happens if data is misused, which can be uh, a threat to uh, all of us and our privacy. Yeah. So a a warning, really, but if you think about some of the things that organizations like MasterCard are putting in place, research from the Pew Foundation that organizations are taking on ethics themselves rather than waiting for countries or governments to regulate. Are you optimistic about the future or no, you really are terrified? Well, I I do talk about the MasterCard Center for Inclusive Growth, uh, which is actually a great example of how organizations can be uh, constructive with the use of data. Data is like any other tool or capability. It can be used for for social good and social benefit. And I think uh, COVID-19 highlighted that. It can also be misused. And one of the problems that's arisen is through social media, 
data is used um, very selectively in the sense that people self-select the social media channels that they're going to follow so they get data that pertains to their particular point of view. I, I think I discuss in the book, there was a British economist named uh, Ronald Coase, uh, C-O-A-S-E. He said, you know, you, you can massage the data basically to uh, tell any story that you want. And that's one of the risks because uh, data can be presented in, in any fashion to defy, to defend any particular position by uh, selectively choosing how you represent it. Yeah. Uh, University of Miami professor Alberto Cairo, I think it is, how charts lie. So this is where we need a more data fluent culture <laughs> across all age groups to see when the data is being used to lie or when it's being manipulated. If we look ahead to the future, what do you see as the future for CEOs who value data and the role of the chief data officer? Well, I, I really believe that at the C-suite, organizations are becoming more data literate. They're understanding the value of data. CEOs and board members are getting a greater appreciation. There's still a gap between lip service and actual understanding and appreciation within many organizations. In other words, there's a certain fashionability for organizations that to, to claim they're, they're data-driven. I remember uh, we organized a series of what I call executive thought leadership roundtable discussions. And back about three years ago, we had chief data officers from Bank of America and American Express and Wells Fargo and J.P. Morgan and a number of organizations. And just that morning in the Wall Street Journal, an article appeared about how these organizations were becoming more AI and data-driven. And they spoke to the CEOs and the chief operating officers of those organizations. And the CDOs were reading these articles and, and looking at some of the statements that were made. And they were saying like, my gosh, this is the first time I've ever heard of this. You know, we've, we've discussed this as maybe a, a possibility, but now it's appearing in the Wall Street Journal as something that we're doing. So there is that public pressure for, for all organizations um, that are leaders in this space to be able to state that they're data-driven, but actually executing it, executing on that on, on a day-to-day -day operational basis it takes a tremendous amount of work. It takes persistence. It, it takes time. It takes continuous improvement. So it's great that organizations are embracing the concept or invest, investing more in data and AI and machine learning. But um, it, it doesn't happen overnight. It's taken many decades for many organizations to get to the place where they are today. And it will take further years and, and further decades for organizations to really leverage data to the greatest extent possible that they can. Yeah. So it's not one and done. It's ongoing. Randy, it's been such a pleasure having you on The Data Chief. Again, his book, Fail Fast, Learn Faster, Lessons in Data-Driven Leadership in an Age of Disruption, Big Data, and AI. Thank you, Randy. It's a pleasure, Cindy. It's always a pleasure. Next up, we have John Thompson, an industry veteran, chief analytics officer at CSL Bering, and author of the best-selling book, Building Analytics Teams. One of the first things data leaders do when assuming the role of CDO or CAO is to get the right people on their team. But the best organizational model 
often depends on factors such as culture, maturity, and company politics. John shares what strategies he's witnessed during his 30 years in the field and how to organize for the biggest impact. All right, John Thompson, welcome to the Data Chief. Hey, Cindy, how you doing? How was your time on the beach? Oh, beautiful. And I, I know you're taking a break soon. Where are you joining us from today, John? Chicago, just north of Chicago and Wilmette, right, right near the lakefront. Okay, a Cubs fan, I understand. Yes, <laughs> uh, I'm heading, uh, heading to Wrigley uh, for the Kansas City uh, Cubs match, uh, Cubs game, August 20th. I'm very excited about it. Oh, I'm sure it'll be great. It's so fun to get back out there to sports uh, at long last. Now, John, you and I have known each other as similar professionals, parallel journeys in some ways for, I'm embarrassed to say it's more than 20 years, but this book is deemed a bestseller, Building Analytics Teams. Tell us what inspired you to write this book now after so long in the industry. Yes, Cindy, you and I have been around for a long time working in the same areas and, and uh, covering and talking about technology for quite some time. But I was thinking about, you know, all the different analytics teams that I've built and the mistakes that I had made. And I really wanted to write a book that was a how-to book for people who are coming into the industry, who have the mandate to hire, build, and manage a high-performance analytics team. And I wanted to write a book for them so they could be able to shortcut that process and get to success faster. Okay, great. So, and you also, besides being an author, a thought leader, an industry veteran, you're also the chief analytics officer at CSL Bering. How long have you been in that role? I've been in that role for about three years now. September, it'll be three years. So yeah, CSL Bering's a $10 billion biopharmaceutical company, second largest biopharma company in the world. And I drive analytics for, for that organization. Yeah, such an important industry vertical. So you said you wrote the book to give people a shortcut. So give us the shortcut. What is the best model for highest impact? I really believe that you need the uh, the analytics organization reporting into uh, a line of business function like the CEO or the COO, or maybe even an SVP of, of operations or something along those lines. And people say, well, no, it could be in the CIO. And, and, and I say, yeah, it can be, but you need the person who's driving the initiatives to either have greater power or peer level power to the senior executives, the SVPs and C-level executives, because a lot of people don't understand that when you're doing analytics, you really are driving change in an organization to do, to really have value realization. You're going to bring forth insights and ideas and new ways of doing things. And that's going to drive change. And if you don't have someone at the top supporting that change, isn't going to happen. Right. So let's clarify. You said a line of business, but I think really what you mean is just anything other than IT. Yes, exactly. Okay. And your writing is actually such a pleasure to read. It's both authentic, but humorous. The way I had to chuckle at one chapter that you titled Original Sin. Tell us a little bit more about that. Yeah, that, that seems to be the uh, the heading that, that gets the most attention in the book. And the reason I wrote it that way is because I wanted people to perk up when they got to it. And, and I do think what happens is when you put analytics under IT or under finance, 
they get subsumed into the overall mission of those organizations, which makes sense. You know, you have to do what your boss asks you to do. In IT, you know, you're not really concerned about driving change in the organization from an analytics perspective. You may, you know, be taking care of the infrastructure and making sure the lights are on and things of that nature, but it's not in the DNA of the IT department to drive change like analytics can. If you're under the finance officer or the CFO, it's often, you know, well, that costs too much. And that doesn't really show that we can get a return as fast as we want. You really need someone who's a visionary in the organization to be driving this mission. So I'm going to push back a little bit here because I work with some very visionary CIOs who actually are driving change in their organization. And I would say that some actually know the art of the possible. And so they're bringing in innovation in data and analytics. Is it maybe that it has to, is this an evolution? Can it start within IT and then become a report into the CEO or COO? Or what do you think about this? Absolutely, Cindy. You're, you're absolutely spot on in your remarks. And, and I'm talking in broad generalities here. You know, when you're writing a book, you want to get the message out to as many people as possible. I was talking to the head of analytics at a, a CPG company out of Switzerland. Let me give you a little bit of an idea who I'm talking about. <laughs> yes. And uh, he reports into the CIO and he was glowing in his, uh, effusive in his praise for his boss, the CIO, because he was visionary. He is visionary. He knows the art of the possible. He is driving change. You know, I'm not saying that all CIOs are ill-equipped to have the data function and analytics function reporting to them, but in broad brush strokes, they are. They're not as, as visionary as we'd like them to be, but there are exceptions. Okay. And so line of business over IT, let's also talk about if we go back to maybe 2008, 2009, when BI just became a C-level topic following some industry consolidation. At that point in time, if an organization was doing analytics centralized in any way, that was considered a sign of maturity. We had the rise of the BICC or BI competency centers. And over time, they became almost the least common denominator, slow to respond, monolithic, cost-cutting, order takers. What's changed or is the hybrid model better? Does it depend? I know exactly the evolution you're talking about there. We, we've been working under a model of a center of excellence, where we have a small number of data scientists that are working on core projects. But we also federate our efforts at CSL. We have people in Switzerland and Australia in end-to-end operations in finance and commercial that are doing data science work. And we have a, a lend-lease model is one way to say it, or a lending library model. We lend data scientists out to those groups. We bring people in from those groups into the center of excellence. And we allow people to move back and forth and work on different projects in a distributed federated model. Our center of excellence is surrounded by a community of practice that's about 500 individuals. And we've broken that community of practice up into 15 special interest groups. So those three organizations interact fluidly to build projects that we lead, build projects that they lead. We may take people from their group and put them on our projects. We take our people and put them on their projects. 
So it's it's a very fluid matrix kind of organization. I, I think that works really well. You know, if you get people in rigid organizations like we only work on these projects or we only do this, that, that can really slow down your efficiency and effectiveness. Yeah, I agree. It's the best of both worlds. I do think it depends on the maturity of the organization and sometimes the culture and politics. This is something that Amit uh, Shadi had shared on the Data Chief podcast. But I would also say with a matrix organization, how do you handle the issue of accountability? Yeah, that's a great question. And you really need to be marching towards a goal with a project or a program. You know, sometimes we do projects, we we go in there and we gather up some data, we get a number and we give it to people and we're done. And that's a project. And, and people are very happy about that. Or we work on programs. You know, we are constantly, we're going to do version one, version two, version three of maybe a forecasting system or maybe a simulation system or an optimization environment. But you really need to have the eye on the prize on those programs or projects. You know, you were, we deliver these projects for a head of a business unit, like the senior vice president of plasma operations. We are working for him on this project and we make sure that we have deadlines, uh, responsibilities, objectives, deliverables, and we hit those on, on a regular basis. So um, you can have a matrix organization, but you do have to have someone in leadership. You do have to have clear projects and you do have to be marching towards those in a diligent way. Okay. So you're very much accountable to the line of business, the VP of Plasma. Does the budget also follow that or how do you handle the resourcing then? That's a really interesting question. Again, you know, I seem to pick the most complicated structures to make things work. So, you know, we have the INT team, which funds the, the servers and the software and the infrastructure. Uh, we have the plasma team when we're working for them or commercial or whoever it is funding the project or program based expenses. My organization holds the, the headcount and compensation and travel and every day to day expenses. So it's it's a constellation of moving entities that are funding these projects. Another thing that you wrote about in your book is the concept between a factory model versus the hybrid model. Explain a little bit more about this. Yeah, sure. The, uh, the factory model is where you set up your team that, you know, two people, let's say two, three, four, whatever it is in each station, will do data acquisition, data integration, feature engineering, modeling, production ingestion, you know, those kind of things. So the work moves through the different stations like you'd see it in a, in a factory. Uh, the hybrid approach is really where you have it broken up and you have artisanal data scientists or artisan data scientists. They're working on their project. They own everything about that project. All those different functions I talked about, data acquisition to production integration, they own it. Now, in the hybrid part of it comes in where you take the artisan data scientists and you supplement them with a factory approach. So you may have data acquisition and data integration, probably not feature engineering. That's a little bit more of an art than it is a science. So you'll have a group of factory people doing this kind of repetitive work. They feed the data objects up to the artisans, to the artisanal data scientists, and they interface with the subject matter experts and the line of business executives and those kind of people. So it's a, it's a very nice mature model to get scale and speed and efficiency and effectiveness. Yeah. And sounds like exploration and innovation as well. Exactly. Yeah. So combining that, that sounds like the best of both worlds. 
So John, the industry moves so quickly and you know, I think of all the data and analytics leaders trying to keep up with the pace of change. Who do you most read or is there a hot book in addition to yours that you would recommend to data and analytics leaders? Well, it's interesting. Uh, you know, I, I read Schmarzo's books, of course. Bill Schmarzo's okay. written some really nice books. Uh, Kurt Bourne, I think, is coming out with a book right now. I'm, I'm anticipating his uh, book. My summer reading is uh, Man's Search for Meeting. So a little bit more heavy reading than uh, than uh, data and analytics. But that's what uh, Victor Frankel is who I'm reading right now. Very good. It's always good to have a good mix. Um, and after decades in the space, I think we both started in kindergarten. Let's just be honest about that. Give us a prediction or maybe a wish for the future. You know, I think I, I'm so excited, Cindy, right now about explainable AI. I've seen a lot of promise out of a few different startups, a handful of startups that are blending neural networks and decision trees to, to really come out with explainable operations of large-scale neural networks. So I'm a big evangelist for you know, the ability to use the most effective modeling techniques in all industries, no matter if it's pharmaceuticals or finance or you know, wherever we have regulatory environments that, it, that require us to explain what we're doing. I hope that we can use these highly effective techniques and get explainability at the same time. Yeah, I hope so too. You know, explainable with trust and removing some of the potential biases at scale, that sounds like a better future to me. It does. I'm very excited about it. And I know you and I have talked about it uh, a lot, you know, at length. And we've had, we were on with Jennifer and uh, Jennifer Redmond. Yeah. Jennifer another Redmond. Name. She was yep. in, really into AI for good. And Jennifer and I have talked a couple of times since our, our podcast. So it was. Um, oh, good. Great I love connecting people. So, John Thompson, thank you so much for being on the Data Chief. My pleasure, Cindy. Anytime. I love talking to you. It's a great show and best of luck in the future. There are a number of books on visualization techniques out there. Cole's book, Storytelling with Data, ties in data storytelling skills, an area that data leaders and practitioners alike must improve upon. I've given this book as a gift to customers and coworkers, and I'm predicting you will make it a must-read for your team, too. So, Cole, welcome to The Data Chief. Thanks, Cindy. I'm excited to chat with you today. I'm very excited too. Where are you joining us from? I am joining you from hot and humid Milwaukee today. Oh, wait. So I, I'm not sure I knew that. Yeah. Well, Cole, I'm also super excited to have you on the Data Chief because I have followed your work. I have given your book to so many people. And what's interesting, I've given it both to data leaders, but also data practitioners. And yet this is the first time you and I are talking. Did you envision that storytelling with data would be so popular and used by professionals at different levels? So first off, I love hearing that, right? Uh, spreading the word, which was really the impetus for the book in the first place, was to try to get this sort of information into more people's hands because we can all be more thoughtful in how we communicate in general and how we communicate with data in particular. So yeah, it's been fantastic. You know, the, the book was, the first book was published six years ago and continues to have great momentum. 
And to your point, at all levels of the organization, we find that in our workshops as well, right? The senior leaders or folks who are reporting to the board need this stuff as much as the day-to-day folks who are ingrained in the data and need to help others subsequently make sense out of what they do. So it's a skill that everyone can benefit by. Absolutely. It's, and you mentioned people at the board, it's interpreting the data, being able to interpret different charts or when data doesn't pass the smell test. Now, you started in BI and, and math earlier, but maybe in people analytics, really at Google. How did you transition from working for one company to then really being one of the leading experts on data storytelling? Yeah. So it's been a winding but amazing path, right? One that I never would have predicted. But even back prior to Google, I was entrenched in data, right? Doing statistical modeling in credit risk and banking, using those same skills at Google, but focused more on people, understanding attrition or what makes a manager effective and how we can quantify that and measure and understand how we're doing on things. And for me, taking data and making it visual, right? Making it something that someone else can see. When you do that well, you see light bulbs go off with the people you're talking to. You find that you're having better conversations and really interesting questions, which just reinforces the whole cycle. So it was while I was at Google that I got an opportunity to pause and do some research and understand why when we're making a graph or a slide, some things work better than others or how we can use color sparingly and strategically to get our audience to look where we want them to look, right? The power of words and really pulling everything together into an experience, a story. And so from going from there to spreading out, I had an opportunity. So I developed a course at Google, had an opportunity to do a couple of presentations outside of Google, which was really when I started to realize this isn't a skill that we only need here, right? This is a skill that pretty much anyone could use to have greater impact in their day-to-day because increasingly everybody's being asked to do things with data. Yes, absolutely. And you broke this into really, I would say, two interrelated skill sets. One is the visualization aspects, the better use of color, but it's also the data storytelling, how you put it together. So tell the listeners a little bit more about how you differentiate between these two skill sets. Yeah. And there's such power when you bring them together, right? So people working with data are usually visualizing it somehow, right? They're doing a graph here and there. And so part of what we teach is really just on how to do that well. Uh, Because invariably, if you're working on a project and you create a graph about your project, your data, you're going to understand where to look and what to see and how to interpret it. But for our audience, we have to take explicit steps to make that clear. So it's part data visualization best practices, but we can take things a whole big level further when we think not just about how we show the data, but how do we really 
communicate it to someone else? How do we get their attention? How do we make what we are communicating resonate with them in ways that they'll pay attention and have good conversations or take smarter actions? And that's where story comes in. I mean, we've all sat through the business presentation that's, you know, we started, we got the data, then we cleaned the data, then we did the analysis, then we found the findings, this very linear path. But when we rethink things in the shape of a story, right? So I often will teach it through the narrative arc where you start off, there's plot. Tension is introduced. That tension builds in the form of a rising action. It reaches a point of climax. There's a falling action, a resolution. People are hardwired to connect with information that is coming at them in roughly that form because we've used stories for so much of our history. And so just making that really, uh, you know, bringing that back to practical application, really it means thinking about our audience and figuring out what is the tension in this scenario. It's not the tension that matters to us as the one communicating, but rather the tension that matters to them. Because if we can identify that, and if we can frame what we're communicating and our story to bring that to light, that's the piece that really can help us drive people to understanding and action. Right. And action, understanding and action are the ultimate goals. Now, if you think about this, though, it was really, I would say, originally Daniel Kahneman, the economist, who talked about advising, um, I believe it was Kissinger, he he presented too much data and said, you know, uh, people don't understand data or math. They understand a story. So if you think this is decades ago, that we had this realization, and yet we're still struggling with these skills. Why is that? You know, I think some of it is just how people go through their education, right? So oftentimes people who are really working with data in and out as a core part of their job have come up through a technical, a quantitative path where historically... Uh, you know, these have been referred to as soft skills, which I, I hate, right? Because you can be very yes. strategic in the way that you communicate. And actually, if you can't communicate well, it almost doesn't matter how good your quantitative skills are because you can't help people understand all of the fantastic work that you've done. And so, you know, we for sure are starting to see more educationally around data visualization for sure. I think there's still a gap though, when it comes to really focusing on the communication pieces with more technical fields. And so what we find is the people who gravitate toward this, right? The people who do this well are going to go far because they not only have a good basis in the statistics and the working with data and the understanding that piece or being able to work with the people who really get deep into that piece, but also the ability to translate that into something that is more generally understandable. So you don't have to have a degree in statistics to understand the analysis that was done. And so it's that sort of translation role that is really needed because we, everybody's drowning in data, right? And there's been such a focus on data scientists. It's like the new sexy job, right? It used to be called right. statistician, by the way. Um, but 
I think still with data scientists, right? That's fantastic that we've got people who know how to do fantastic things with data, but there's a piece of that that needs to be the communication and really helping make that data come alive and be understandable broadly. Yes. Well, so interestingly, I I did write this year that the data scientist is no longer sexy or actually has lost its luster. But one of the reasons has been this lack of attention to communication and specifically data storytelling skills. So I know some of the universities that I work with, like Drexel Business Analytics Program, they're adding these uh, to the curriculum. So I I, I hope uh, we'll go there. But, But do you think we're getting better on either sides of these? So it sounds like you think we're getting better at visualization, still work to do on data storytelling. And if we're getting better, maybe is there an organization that others should try to emulate? That's hard because, so I mean, we see a ton of different organizations and even in a given organization, right? Some are are so large and have departments in such different places that there's quite varying levels of ability or uh, focus on this. So for our, our workshops, we really encounter all sorts of different industries, different job functions, right? And we solicit examples from the groups ahead of time so that we can understand oh, how good. they're communicating with data yeah. currently, what challenges they might be facing, right? And we use that to customize content and to use as the basis of some of the hands-on examples. It runs the gamut today, I feel like, pretty much as much as it did 10 years ago, right? Where certainly there's been a shift in the positive direction where more organizations are realizing that there is value in being able to not only visualize data well, but communicate it effectively. And that this isn't a natural skill set. This is not an innate, people just know how to do this. There's some development uh, that needs to happen Because my strong view is there are no experts in this space. We can all become increasingly nuanced in how we are communicating with data. Right. And so what would you say then is the biggest offense that you continue to see that you wish people would stop doing? For me, the biggest offense is not considering our audience. Too often, I think we get done with an analysis or a project and we jump straight to making graphs and making slides without ever really thinking about the people on the receiving ends of those materials. And so in our workshops, we spend a ton of time talking about audience, right? Who are they? How do we understand their needs? How do we tailor what we do to meet those needs. Uh, Because it's really by doing that that we're going to be able to get our own needs met. Right? When we step back and think about it, there are a ton of aspects of the communication process that we can tailor to our audience, from our general approach to the materials we develop, to the environment in which we present to them. So the more thought we can give to how do I make what I'm creating work for my audience, the better materials everyone will develop. Yeah. So that's great advice, Cole. It's really the pre-work before you even get to a visualization or what have you. But even so, when you look at some of the bad things that people do, like overstating differences, changing scaling, things like this, 
Do you think this happens accidentally, or do you think this ties a little bit into the ethics of how we use data? So I would like to assume, and I think most of the examples that we encounter when we're collecting from clients and and we see these missteps, that it's done inadvertently, right? That it's not somebody intentionally trying to mislead. It's someone sort of hyper-focused on one thing where maybe they don't step back and see the bigger picture, or sometimes our tools are doing bad things and truncating axes where we may not even recognize it. Now, that said, certainly there are malicious uses of data and we see that. And so I'm a big proponent of always having a little bit of skepticism when you see a graph or when someone gives you data. Uh, I think people like to think that data is fact, which is rarely the case, right? You think of all the decisions that go into creating a data point or a graph. It goes all the way back to, you know, what data did we decide to collect in the first place? And, And then every decision made along the way. So there is absolutely no such thing as unbiased data. Absolutely. But that doesn't mean yeah. we can't be ethical, right? In the decisions that yeah. we make and be robust and look for people who will have different perspectives or different, might be making a different assumptions or working from a different set of assumptions and talk to them and show them your graphs. And that's a great way to help you see things through someone else's eyes and catch these sorts of things. You know, you've done so much already, Cole, but you also have a podcast. And recently on your podcast, you spoke about the importance of professionals having their own story. You shared a story with your son, but tell us why is this so important or how should a data professional or a data leader approach this? People don't practice talking about themselves a lot of the time. And it turns out that the same sort of storytelling principles that we've touched on a little bit here already can be used for our personal stories as well. And so I think it was actually, it's episode 38 of the Storytelling with Data podcast called Hi, My Name Is. And there's actually an exercise in our online Storytelling with Data community that goes along with it that outlines the steps but it's really encouraging people to reflect on their experience, right? the projects they've done, the work they've done, and think about the perception that they would like to create with their audience and really using a story arc to frame that. Um, because when you do this robustly once, then you get this like meta story about yourself Uh, You get synced on talking through it eloquently, and then you are armed for any time you need to talk about what you do, right? So I know everyone will be rushing afterwards to download that one, listen to that one, and practice. Cole, thank you so much for being on The Data Chief. Absolutely. Thanks for having me, Cindy. Finally, my former colleague from Gartner, and now a fellow at West Monroe, Doug Laney published Infonomics in 2017. Shortly after, CIO Magazine dubbed it a must-read of 2018. His groundbreaking work in valuing data will change the way you think of driving business value with data, how you manage data as an asset, and how you monetize it to create compelling data apps. Doug Laney, welcome to The Data Chief. 
Great to be with you, Cindy. Uh, Great podcast you've got. I really enjoy it. Thank you so much. So, Doug, where are you joining us from today? Joining you from uh, Chicago, about three blocks west of Wrigley Field. Oh, another baseball fan down the street from John Thompson, our other guest on this. Right, right. (laughs) So, Doug, you and I worked together at Gartner when you first published this groundbreaking book, Infonomics. Mm -hmm. And yet it still, I would say, is an emerging concept. Tell us more about it and why it matters so much to the industry overall. It sort of is and isn't. Almost every company talks about managing their data as an asset and understanding the value that data brings and doing more with their data, generating more you know, economic value with their data. So those are all kind of the constituent parts of, of Infonomics. But as far as really embracing it as a discipline, yeah, it's still kind of an evolving, uh, an evolving emerging, emerging concept. Yeah. And I think the pandemic actually has thrown a greater light on this. You highlighted how some of the airlines now, their market cap has plummeted, and yet the value of their data assets is so much higher. Yeah, it's an interesting uh, inter- interesting um, scenario, interesting way that organizations are, are some organizations are monetizing their, their data. We'll talk about kind of the, the, the range of data monetization methods, but the airlines in order to stay aloft, um, as it were, during the pandemic, had to take out loans. And so they looked around and, okay, so what do we have to collateralize to take out loans? And you would initially think that um, they would collateralize their their aircraft, right? But aircraft are actually leased, so not really a good candidate for collateralization. And so what they did was they realized that they had a lot of data wrapped up in their customer loyalty programs and that the customer loyalty programs themselves were worth a lot of money. And the creditors, including the the U.S. government and some large banks, determined that the value of these customer loyalty programs, which of course are comprised mostly of data, were worth two to three times the current market value of the businesses themselves. So American United Airlines market value was about eight or nine billion each. And the creditors determined that the, the value of this data was worth uh, 20 to $30 billion. Right, right. Huge, huge difference. Yes. Yeah. So the lesson is, you know, for, for many companies, the value of your data may actually be more than the value of your company. Yeah. And so we know this. Mm-hmm. We know this from the creditors. We know this from a business operating model. Mm-hmm. And yet, as you eloquently wrote um, in your book, FASB, the current accounting models fail to provide much information on internally generated assets. So investors don't even really get this visibility. And internally, we don't we don't have consistent ways of assessing how much is the data worth. So how has your thinking changed since you first wrote that a few years ago? I don't know that my, my thinking has changed. You know, my, my goal has not really been to, to change um, accounting standards. Yeah, that would be nice. But you know, my, yeah. my goal as a, as a data professional, as, a, as an advisor to organizations on, on data management, data strategy, you know, analytics, is really to get them to do more with data. And I think it really starts with understanding um, the value of, of what, what you have and the potential value of, of that asset. And so, you know, the old adage is you can't manage what you don't measure, right? Mm-hmm. And so I think because most organizations don't measure the value of their data, some don't even measure the quality of their data, they're in a really poor position to get the resources or budgets necessary 
to manage data as an actual asset. Um, in fact, many organizations manage their office furniture with more discipline than the way they manage their, their data. Um, okay, it's that's tragic. On the, it's on the balance <laughs> sheet, right? And, and I think it yeah. follows that you can't monetize or you can't generate uh, economic value from any asset that you're not managing particularly well. And so that's kind of how it all, all fits together. So again, the goal is not really to change accounting standards. That would be nice. But like you said, the investors are already on top of this. You know, we found that companies that demonstrate certain kinds of info savvy kinds of behaviors um, are, are valued by investors by two to one over other kinds of companies. Like if they have a chief data officer or a data science organization or an enterprise data governance function, that seems to correlate to uh, investors' interest in those enterprises. And the companies that are primarily selling data or data derivatives of some kind, uh, data products of some kind, um, have a market to book value ratio that's nearly three times higher than the market average. So investors are already all over this. It's just that the accounting practices are steeped in a you know 90-year-old history of not recognizing data as an asset. Okay. So a couple things that you said there, mm-hmm. Doug. First off is that those that monetize their data or have data as a product mm-hmm. that they're selling externally three times the value. This word data monetization, people interpret differently. So what you just talked about is really leveraging data externally, Mm -hmm. but you also use the term data monetization as an approach of just leveraging data better internally. Is that right? Or what's the general understanding of, of this? Right. So when we think about generating value from data, we need to think about it internally and externally. And if we're going to understand the 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 value that any given data asset or data set uh, delivers, we need to look at how it's being leveraged internally. What is its contribution to a revenue stream or expense savings? Uh, and then externally, what new revenue or business uh, measurable business opportunities is that is that data bringing to the to the organization? And so yeah. data monetization takes a lot of different forms. Um, from developing new products and services to improving uh, business process performance to forging and, and solidifying partner relationships to selling data directly or data derivatives or data products or baking data into existing products and services. And then a lot of companies have come to me uh, lately and said, we want to monetize our customer data, but we can't due to regulations like uh, uh, GDPR, HIPAA, CCPA, et cetera. I kind of admonish <laughs> those clients and suggest that. They're not really thinking about it creatively enough. You know, if you flip that model on its head and you say, listen, I can't sell you my data, but I can sell your stuff to my customers without ever exposing who they are. I refer to that as inverted data monetization. And so it's something that we're working on with a, a lot of clients, like in the healthcare industry, a hospital know, who knows who its diabetes patients are, can't sell that data to anyone, but they can sell healthy meal plans, gym memberships, uh, at-home glucose monitoring test kits to those patients. Um, and then take a cut of the action. So there's definitely ways to monetize customer data, um, even though you may not think so. Yeah, yeah. You use the word it, it inverted. And mm-hmm. I do think what we largely have here is a lack of imagination Absolutely. and thinking too myopically just about internally rather than that ecosystem. What are the ultimate patient needs yeah. and who's who's yeah. delivering those patient needs? I did want to get back to the accounting thing. There has been some accounting movement. So uh, in recent years, uh, the accounting profession has allowed data brokers who purchase another's database 
to capitalize that and, and recognize that on the balance sheet as uh, other intangible and then kind of straight line depreciated. So there are rare instances where you can actually capitalize um, data on the balance sheet. So I didn't want to say, I didn't want to suggest that it can never happen. Yeah, yeah. And I, I think the idea, accounting principles are one thing. Right. To me, it's just more the point of how valuable is this? Mm-hmm. And I think we seem to consistently underestimate it. Even you mentioned the word data brokers, and there was research, I believe it was from Accenture, that estimated that the size of the data apps, so just the data brokerage market, is about $10.4 billion in, in 2021, oh, and mm-hmm. that it'll free up um, just trillions of dollars when we look across yeah. the whole ecosystem. Right. Does that sound about right to you, or are we still underestimating here? Sanity check, yes, but I haven't measured it at a, at a macro level like that. I do know from working with an investment bank um, that there's a lot of money chasing data opportunities um, and even Absolutely. not necessarily data brokers, but but companies that are sitting on, on you know, latent or stagnant um, data sets. We've come across a number of clients who said, yeah, you know, we'd love to monetize our data, but um, it's not something that we're really comfortable investing in. So we can bring in this investment bank now who will fund the data monetization initiatives and then kind of their investors will take a cut of of that action. Yeah. Wow. So fascinating. And Doug, you do so many things in the industry. You just wrapped up chairing the MIT CDO Symposium. Any key takeaways? And also, I hear that um, a, a session that you loved was the UK highways example of how they're monetizing data. Yeah, I loved it. I've, I've known about this uh, this story for, for a while, um, and uh, they actually leveraged the infonomics concepts to do some really interesting things culturally in their organization. And, uh, and then I spoke with their chief data officer, uh, Davin Crowley-Sweet, and interviewed him for a, a piece I wrote in, in Forbes not too long ago. So basically what they did was they used the concept of data valuation to totally change their culture related to data. They ended up determining that the value of their data was 50% the value of all their other assets combined. And what this enabled is, is a radical change in their culture where you know, data people have gone from not being invited to business strategy related meetings to actually now chairing them. He also mentioned that by evaluating data at an enterprise level, not at a data set level, they're now able to have you know, enterprise level conversations with the, the executive committee. So uh, it's really uh, raised the specter of, of data to an enterprise level within the organization. What a great way to elevate all data professionals, no matter what level they're at. And I think Davin Crowley Street, the CDO, said he found it was worth $60 billion Yep. pounds. Mm-hmm. And and I you speak about this culture change. It's really the language of business about data right. um, that, I, that I think was key. Doug, I also know you teach a lot. I don't know how you find time for all this stuff. I wish I had more time. So you're teaching, you're working on another book. Tell us about these things. I got connected. Uh, I'm a University of Illinois uh, alum and I uh, got connected to the, the, the dean of the business school there a number of years ago. He kind of caught wind of some of the work that I was doing on, on infonomics before the book published. And he asked me if I was interested in teaching a class on that. And I said, well, let me, you know, let me publish the, the book first. And uh, so I've been teaching it for three years now, um, and one, once, once a year to both the accounting and, uh, and MBA students. And in the first year, I had 12 students. 
Last year, I had 60 students in the class, and, and this year, I had 410 students <laughs> register for That's the class. That's quite a growth so, rate. <laughs> uh, I guess uh, either I'm a really easy grader or students have found this, this topic uh, more and more compelling over, over the years. Um, yeah, I also teach a, a couple classes at the, uh, the Carnegie Mellon. They do kind of a CDO boot camp and then some other things. But yeah, I enjoy it because mostly I, I learned from the, the students. Like one of the really fun exercises uh, assignments that I give my, my MBA students is to look at any kind of economic model, macro or microeconomic model, and, and explore how does that work in the context of data rather than in the context of goods and services or guns and butter, you know, as we talk about in, mm -hmm. in econ classes. And uh, they've come up with some really, really interesting insights into how things like supply and demand and monopolies and externalities and uh, uh, government regulation all relate to, um, to re relate to data. And uh, I'm hoping to compile all of that into a book as well, but I'm, I'm still trying to get approval from the university. And Doug, what, what about the book? Are, are you working on another book or is this just a rumor? <laughs> no, it's not a rumor. I am working on another book. I find that a lot of clients are, are really inspired by or need to be inspired by actual use cases of how data and analytics are driving value in, in organizations. So over the years, I've compiled over 500 you know, real-world use cases, and I've kind of picked 100 of my favorite one and are compiling them into a, a book, along with an analysis by 100 uh, data analytics experts uh, around the world. So I've totally crowdsourced the, uh, the book because my wife told me that if I ever wrote another book, it would have to be titled, um, How I Use uh, Big Data to Find My Next Wife. So, um, <laughs> so she okayed me crowdsourcing. So she's had enough book. of the writing. Yeah, yeah. Well, I often say writing a book, it's like raising a child. It always takes me nine months to produce a book. So yeah, you know it, right? Good. So if you think about your career in this space, mm -hmm. is there anything you really want data and analytics leaders to do differently right now? Have the conversation with your CFO, right? Um, a lot of CFOs are becoming more open to talking about the concept of valuing data, right? Even though it's not a balance sheet asset, you can still go to your CFO and say, listen, Mr. Ms. CFO, I understand data is not a balance sheet asset, but in order for us to become a more data-driven organization to survive and, and thrive in the data economy, we need to start treating data as an asset. That starts with understanding its value uh, proposition, its value components, its contribution to revenue streams, its ability to be monetized, its cost basis, even its quality indicators. And that all needs to be measured and reported on. Yeah. And it sounds like that's a great way to make data a forethought rather than an afterthought. Yeah. Yeah. We're getting there. We're getting there. Doug, it's been such a tough year for everyone, isolated, working from home. Tell me something in the last year that has made you totally laugh out loud, like tears running down your cheeks. I happened to uh, have my first on-site uh, client meeting in uh, like 16 months the other week. And um, we were uh, uh, initiating a data literacy uh, project for a, a large uh, pharmaceutical-related company. And... Um, we asked about how well-defined their enterprise uh, data architecture is. And one of the, the data management team uh, leads commented that, uh, this is what he said, he said, if we gave a couple of toddlers a box of crayons for a few hours, that's what our data architecture looks like. Oh, um, gosh. <laughs> that was hilarious. Um, you know, and I think, you, you know, you're right. In times like these, it's really important to, to find humor and almost everything around us. It is. Doug, thank you so much for being on The Data Chief. My pleasure. Great to be with you again, Cindy. 
Thank you for tuning in to another episode of The Data Chief. To learn more about today's guest, recommend a future guest, or hear more of the show, head over to thedatachief.com. If you have questions for Cindy or comments about the episode, give her a shout by dropping your thoughts on LinkedIn and tagging Cindy Housen. Join her on LinkedIn Live the first Thursday of each month for a live version of The Data Chief, where she'll share best practices and take your questions live. If you haven't already, be sure to subscribe, rate, and review the show. Every review helps more people discover the podcast and helps us improve our content. The Data Chief is brought to you by our friends at ThoughtSpot, the modern analytics cloud company. Finding insights in your company's data doesn't have to be complicated. All you need is search. With ThoughtSpot, anyone in your organization can easily answer their own data questions, find facts, and make better, faster decisions. Learn more at ThoughtSpot.com. Thank you for tuning in to another episode of The Data Chief. To learn more about today's guest, recommend a future guest, or hear more of the show, head over to thedatachief.com. If you have questions for Cindy or comments about the episode, give her a shout by dropping your thoughts on LinkedIn and tagging Cindy Housen. And if you haven't already, be sure to subscribe, rate, and review the show. Every review helps more people discover the podcast and helps us improve our content. The Data Chief is presented by our friends at ThoughtSpot, the modern analytics cloud company. ThoughtSpot makes it easy for anyone to analyze your company's data with search and AI. Business people at companies like Verizon, CVS, Amazon, Afterpay, OpenTable, and T-Mobile use ThoughtSpot to quickly uncover new insights and turn them into action. And you can learn more at ThoughtSpot.com.